sing this one new on Wednesday, but um, in case you don't know it, um, it's a pretty easy song, but uh, it's really good. So uh, once you get used to it, sing along. Thank you. 
start at 10. Next week, your, your internal clock will be adjusted, and you'll be right on time. Uh, we're glad you're here with us. Um, hopefully, if you're new and this is your first time, someone has caught you uh, with a Connect card and had you start filling that out or let you take it with you. If you would uh, fill that out and get that back to us at the information.
information kiosk, or if you have just the bottom half of that and you want to fill that out by the end of the service, bring it back. Uh, the, the point of that card is that uh, we put you on a mailing list and we sell that information uh, to marketing companies. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we just want to know who you are and how we can serve you, how we can pray for you. Um, and we do have a special gift that we try to get to you during the week. So if you give us your information, we'd like to get that to you. Um, again, welcome, whether you showed up an hour ago or you just showed up because you kind of thought it was 10 o'clock right now. Uh, we're glad you're here. Thanks for being with us at the firehouse. Um, some announcements for you. Uh, just for those of you who don't know, we do have a Saturday night service. It's every Saturday night at 6 o'clock right here in the cafe. Uh, it's just a great time of, of fellowship and, and service and time together. Uh, it works really great uh, if Sunday mornings are not your favorite time or if you know somebody who would like to come to church but they can't make it on Sunday for whatever reason. It's a great opportunity to get together. Uh, our next announcement, we do have Sunday school this morning for kids from junior high back on down to birth. Uh, we'll break that here when I'm done with announcements. Uh, four different classes. The youngest two classes will uh, have you check in your kids um, for a security precaution in case there's a need during the service. We'll flash the number on the screen. And of course, you're welcome to keep your kids with you. Uh, during the teaching, kids are always welcome and not a distraction here at the firehouse. Uh, small groups, that's a uh, time where we get together, really connect with each other. Uh, meets Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock in uh, a variety of homes around town. Uh, if you want more information about that, you could talk to me, you could talk to a pastor, you could talk to one of the Connect people. Uh, we do have some flyers that have the locations of those uh, at the information kiosk, and it is also available on our website. So we'd love for you to join us this week. Uh, everybody is welcome. Uh, we would just love to have you there. Uh, teen group, if you're a teenager, you probably know what that's about. Uh, it is, I think the 22nd is a Saturday, right? March 22nd at the Nielsen's house at 6.30, and there's going to be a special guest speaker. That's all I can say about that. And I think that's our last announcement, right? Yeah, great. Thank you again for being with us. Take a couple minutes. We'll let the kids be released to Sunday school. Uh, fill up one or both of your coffee mugs this morning. Uh, and then Dennis will be up in a few minutes to share from First Thessalonians. Thanks.
Okay, I think we'll just go ahead and uh, pull together now. <coughs> um, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to be talking about a subject that's um, very near and dear to my heart, um, as you can see by the outlines. We're talking in First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up where Rich left off last week. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the return of the Lord. <coughs> Let me just go finish my introduction by saying um, it's sort of like getting married. Here, here's what I mean by that. When Thelma and I were getting interested in one another, um, it seemed like everything was lining up. You know, our, I was attracted to her, she was attracted to me. That's a miracle. And uh, so, and our spiritual lives were really in line too. You know, we had. Um, we had very common interests and commitments to the Lord. We were on a team and we were traveling around and we were evangelizing on college campuses. So, that was a, we were kind of involved day and night doing that. And this happened for about three, two years. And about somewhere along the year and a half mark, um, I started getting an interest in Thelma. And um, she's eight years younger than I am. So I kept thinking, Gee, I think I'm the wrong guy. This guy over here should be interested. I, I talked to him once. Check out this little girl right here. This little thumb. She's a great girl. Because I could see her heart was changing and it was really getting committed to the Lord and all. And I just, I'm, honestly, I didn't really think it was for me uh, to marry her. But um, the more uh, there was hesitancy on everybody else's part, I just thought, I'm going to just go for it. And I just prayed more about it. And uh, <clears throat> the Lord just seemed to confirm in my own heart that this would be worth checking more into and I talked to her about it and so we decided just to kind of pray about it together and we were getting a lot of counsel we are doing all the right things um, and so the day finally came after you know waiting on the Lord more times and it's just hard to know when you can say would you marry me I mean that's just kind of a scary thing uh, but we long story short I finally got to that point but all the time I was still giving the Lord room because I thought well if I I think, I think this is what God wants, but I'm, you know, I want to leave the door open in case it isn't. Because I'm not God, and I don't have perfect understanding on everything. So, yeah, I thought, this is the one. But in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, well, Lord, if it isn't, just go ahead and shut that door. And I, that was my attitude going all the way up to the very day we got married. I would just I would pray that and I'd say, Lord, if this isn't Your will, then I, I trust You. You know, because sometimes I don't trust my own heart because I there's no verses that says, Dennis, Thou shalt marry Thelma. So I just had to kind of go on a lot of different things, and peace was one of them, and counsel was one of them, and Scripture. I thought she kind of fit the Proverbs 31 role pretty well. So I just felt good about all that. And so, you know, when I when I was really convinced it was the Lord's will, when she said, I do. In front of the, and the, and the marriage altar, yeah. At that point, I knew it was God's will, and I moved ahead. <laughs> so, we were married. Um, but you know, prophecy is kind of like that. You kind of, okay, I think I know what God is saying here in His Word on how this whole thing is going to play out at the end. I'm pretty convinced about that, or I wouldn't be standing up here talking about it right now. But at the same time, there's reservation in the back of my mind because I'm not God and um, I'm not a real theologue anyway. But I've prayed a lot about it and it's, spent, it's been a hot button in my life. I love this pro I love the subject. So I think it's what I'm going to share with you is, is what God wants you to hear. 
But at the same time, just keep in mind, you're going to need to be kind of like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 or whatever. They, they had to search the scripture daily to see if these things were so. You need to do that. You need to have your own convictions in this. I'm going to share my convictions. And there may be times where I'm, I seem like I'm pretty strong here. But just remember, in the back of my mind, um, I'm still standing in front of that marriage altar and we haven't said I do quite yet. Do you understand? Can we move on? Okay. <laughs> The subject we're going to look at today in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, if you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. It's called the rapture. The Bible makes it very clear that there's two comings of Christ. His first coming, he came and landed right in Bethlehem, Christmas. Second coming, he's going to come and he's going to land on the earth, right on the Mount of Olives. And that's pretty exciting when you read about it. But there's a third coming that the scripture talks about and it's a secret coming that's what the rapture is it's where Christ comes secretly in the clouds to get his bride the church that's you and me he's going to come and get us and then he's going to take us with him back to our dwelling places that he's been preparing for us in heaven there are several chap verses that kind of point this out and Jesus was actually the very one that spoke about this rapture um, and it's in John 14. So he said this, and he's, he's, he's introducing the subject to his disciples one more time, the fact that he's getting ready to leave them. They're downhearted. They don't like that idea. They were waiting for him to set up his kingdom right then on the earth. Plus, he's leaving them. How are they going to carry on? Holy cow, they're concerned about this. So what he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself. Receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The New Living says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you. I'm going to come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I like the way the message says it. It says, don't let this throw you, this idea that I'm leaving and you're going to be left all behind. Don't, don't be worried about this. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There's plenty of room for you in my Father's house. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you. So you can live where I live. After you listen to those verses and read them, where do you think, where is this whole process going to end up? Where, where would you end up if he was saying that to you, do you think? Earth? Heaven? I think. That's the impression, even though it doesn't say that here. That's a strong impression I think you get from these verses. He's coming secretly in the clouds and he's going to grab his bride and take him back with him into heaven. That's different from the first, two, the first coming and the second coming where he lands on the earth. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is where we get into it in our chapter for today. Start with verse 13. And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what will happen to the Christians who have died so you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, 
We also believe that when he comes, God will bring back with Jesus all the Christians who have died. They were concerned about their loved ones who had already died. Why were they concerned about this? Because when Paul was there in Thessalonica, he was only there for a short time. It says he reasoned in the Sabbath. He reasoned in the synagogue for three Sabbaths in Acts 17. Now we don't know if he stayed much longer than that, but it's not an indication that they stayed there a long time. So he started the church. He was, he was there for a little bit of time. And when you're only there for a short time, because he probably thought the Jews that ran him out of these other towns nearby are going to be there and they're going to run him out here too, and he probably knew his time was limited. Sure enough, it happened. And so you kind of weigh carefully what you're going to teach these new believers. They just got saved. They just came to know Christ. And so what's he going to go over with them? Assurance of salvation? He's going to go over having a quiet time? <laughs> no. Yeah, maybe. Uh, how to walk in the Spirit? How to... How to, keep your, how to keep your heart right with the Lord and stay united with one another. All these wonderful things. But you know, one of the things he taught him was the Lord's return. Would have you thought of teaching him that in three weeks? I don't know if I would have. He taught him that. And once he left him, once he was run out of town, then they started getting concerned about, well, what happens to our loved ones when Jesus comes back? Are they going to miss out on that coming and all the wonderful, exciting events that are going to follow? So Jesus, or Paul writes them and he says, Hey, no worry. All of your loved ones and friends, if they're believers, they're already with Jesus. But they say, how can this be? Their bodies are right here in the grave. See, they're young believers. They don't have it all together. They may have only been saved three weeks. So they still have a lot of understanding yet to gather. How can they come back with Jesus? The Bible tells us that the very moment a believer dies, his spirit leaves him at that instantaneous time and hits his right to the presence of the Lord. I did this last night, I'm going to do it this morning. It happens, you close your eyes here and you open them there. So I want everybody to close their eyes. Now open them. Close them, open them, boom, just like that. You die here, boom, you're in heaven. Just that fast. And the Bible's really clear on this. There's no limbo, there's no purgatory, there's no soul sleep. When a believer dies, his, sure, his body goes in the grave, but his spirit leaves him and goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. Listen to the verse here in 2 Corinthians 5. I love this. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when Jesus comes back, guess who's coming back with him? Now how did Paul know all of this? Verse 15. I can tell you this directly from the Lord. See, Paul received this as a direct revelation from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet Him ahead of those who are in the graves. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the call of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, all the Christians who have died will rise from their graves then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with Him forever. So comfort one another with these words. Those two words, caught up, those of us who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds. That's, we get our word rapture from that. That's where we get our word rapture because rapture is not in your concordance in the Bible. You can look under R, it's not there. But it's, it's the caught up. 
So Christ is going to come secretly in the clouds. He's going to catch his, he's going to get his bride, all true believers, and he's going to catch them up into the clouds. That's how it's going to play out. Another verse on this is 1 Corinthians 15. Let me tell you a wonderful secret God has revealed to us. Not all of us will die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in the moment, in the blinking of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. Then when the last trumpet sounds, the Christians who have died will be raised with transformed bodies, and then we who are living will be transformed so that we will never die. Have you ever wondered why the dead in Christ might rise first? Maybe it's because they have six feet more to go. I don't know. I don't think so. A better question, I think, to ask is, when? When does this event occur? Now, there's three schools, main schools of thought on this, three groups of people. You have the pre-tribbers, the mid-tribbers, and the post-tribbers. The pre-tribbers are people who believe that the, 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 the rapture will occur before the tribulation period, which is seven years long. The mid-trib people, they feel that the rapture is going to occur in the middle of the tribulation. And the post-tribbers, you know where they, they're at the end. And then you have the pan-tribbers, they don't really care. Because it's all going to pan out in the end. So, <laughs> There's godly men in each one of these camps. There is godly men in each one of these camps. Shall I say that again? There's godly men in every one of these camps. And to be honest, Scripture doesn't really spell it out clearly and succinctly in one little short paragraph. So, that's why we have diff three different camps. But I think when you compare Scripture to Scripture and you consider the other passages, in my thinking, it's very obvious. And I'm sure others in other camps would say the same thing. In my thinking, it's very obvious. But in my thinking, it is very obvious when this occurs. At least that's my thinking. It's before the tribulation period. He's going to come and catch his bride away before the seven years. And what makes this so obvious to me? Three reasons. There's many others, but man, we don't have time to talk about them now. Let me just give you the three that I think um, satisfy me. Um, the first one comes out of a prophecy given way back in the Old Testament by the prophet Daniel, 521 B.C. And um, it's called the backbone of Bible prophecy. It's, it's the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's also referred to that. It's the 70 weeks of Daniel. Um, here's the setting. It's in, we're in Babylon, 521 B.C., Israel has been taken captive. Their 70 years of captivity by the Babylonians is nearing an end. And the prophet Daniel is spending days and weeks in prayer because he's trying to ask God. He wants to find out, okay, what's the future look like? What's next on the agenda for, for my people? And he's been praying and fasting and he's probably just worn out. It's in the evening time the angel Gabriel interrupts his prayers. And he comes and tells him, he gives him a vision. And what a vision. It's the grand scheme of events that will direct the course of history from that point to the very end. I would say that's an answer to prayer. That's an amazing vision. It's going to direct the scheme of events from that point, 521, to the very end. So, there's three things we need to notice 
when we look at this, these verses right here in, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, um, God marks out a specific block of time. You can write that in. A specific block of time. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed. God is telling Daniel, he's blocking off on his calendar a specific period of time. He's reserved a block of time. Second thing, God marks out a specific people and city. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So this entire 70 week block of time applies only to the Jews and to their holy city, Jerusalem. So you guys are going to have to hang in here with me now, please. Hang on, pay attention, because it really does make a lot of sense when we get to the end here. So, Okay. That's huge, though. It applies to the Jews and to their holy city. The third thing God marks out in this is a length of time is marked out. But not only a length of time, but He even breaks it down into three segments. Seventy weeks. You've got seven weeks, sixty-two weeks, and one week. So he's adding them up. 7 plus 62 plus 1 is 70. And in each one of these segments, certain things are going to take place. We need to understand, though, first, what he means by weeks. You know, when we think of a week, we think of days, seven days. You know, somebody says, I'm going to meet you here in seven days. Let's meet up here in seven days. You think, or week. You think, oh, I'm going to, we'll get together again in seven days. But see, it, in the original language, it doesn't use the word days here. You know what it says? It uses the word um, sevens. It literally reads 77s. 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city. 77s. So what are these sevens? What are these units? Are these weeks? Are they months? Are they years? Let's assume he means weeks. Let's assume when he says week, he means weeks. So if you take 70 weeks, multiply it times 7, that's 490 days or approximately a year and 4 months. You still end up somewhere around 520 B.C. And you won't find the Messiah showing up anywhere near that time. And yet the Messiah is a big part of this whole prophecy, as we'll see. So it must not mean literal days, it must mean something different. The RSV translates it 70 weeks of years. That's right on. Because if you look at the context of Daniel 9, verse 1 and 2, it starts off talking about years. So we don't have 490 days to deal with here. We have 490 years. And who is this relating to? The Jewish people and their holy city. So let's look at this first segment on PowerPoint. Let's keep reading here in verse 25. It tells us when, these, when God's time clock begins for these 70 weeks. It says, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So you've got two things happening here in these two segments. Seven weeks, 62 weeks. Jerusalem gets built, and the Messiah shows up. So the first thing to remember, though, is the beginning point of these 490 years is the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That decree is found where in the Bible? 
Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, 444 B.C. That's the exact year that, that this time clock with 70 years begins. For seven weeks of years, or 49 years, the Jews were busy restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. Now, did that happen? Okay, if you start at 444 B.C., you fast forward 49 years, you end up, you come to 395 B.C., so we've used up the first seven years, weeks of years. And what about the next 62 weeks of years, or there's 434 years in that segment. What about those guys? So if you go from 395, where you ended up after the, the seven years, okay, if you start there now, and you go fast forward 62 years, 62 weeks of years, that's 434 years, you know what happens? Messiah walks, rides into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday. Look at verse 25. Messiah the Prince will be there. Now did that work out? This is amazing. You know, prophecy is one way that you can say this book is inspired. Because if you see enough prophecies coming true and they're back to back in the Old Testament, over 300, you start seeing all of them line up and coming true, you know this is more than coincidence. This is an inspired book. Well, this is the granddaddy of them all, right here. A century ago, Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, gave, gave detailed calculations of those 62 weeks. And he was using prophetic years, which is the Jewish calendar of 360 days a year. Not 365 like we use. He allowed for leap years, errors in the calendar, and the change from B.C. to A.D., and guess what day 62 weeks of years ended on? March 30, 33 A.D. The very day Christ rode into Jerusalem. Let's read about it in Luke 19. And as he was now, now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had, been, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know what they were quoting? A messianic psalm. Psalm 118. Every Jew in that city understood what that meant. They were quoting a psalm saying, This is the, this is the Messiah. He's come. He's come. Some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You know, as you've read that passage, have you ever wondered why he said the stones would cry out? Next verse 41. And when he approached, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, this very day, this is the prophesied day from the day of Daniel when Gabriel said it, this is your day, if you had only known. Their eyes were blinded. They were blinded to see the amazing thing that was happening. And why? Because they had hardened their hearts. And because they would not see, they could not see. This is exactly to the day what Daniel prophesied. 
the exact day of all those 483 years into that day when he rode into Jerusalem presenting himself as the Messiah. And Jesus knew that an end had been marked out to that 62 year, weeks of years. And he knew that this was the day as he rode into Jerusalem that his coming would be a reality and they didn't even see it. If you had only known. And five days later, he was cut off. He was killed. Exactly what Daniel prophesied. Seven weeks to build Jerusalem, seven weeks of years. 62 more weeks of years takes us to Messiah. That's 69 weeks of years total. We're done with that. And it's interesting that before Daniel mentions the last week, the 70th week, he describes some things that are going to take place between the 69th and 70th week. So there is a gap between the 69th and the 70th. Look what he, he says, verse 26. This is the second segment on our PowerPoint. Then after the 62 weeks, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. He'll die. So Messiah the Prince will come, and then after 62 weeks are completed, it says, He will be cut off. Or in the words of the Berkeley translation, be eliminated. He'll be killed. And this happened five days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Daniel mentions one other thing that will take place after those 62 weeks are done. And it says, And, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. And that happened. Who were the people who destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans. This is one of the few places in Scripture where we see a double fulfillment of one prophecy. It's called the Law of Double Fulfillment. Two fulfillments for one prophecy. Here we see one that's already happened in the past, and one is still to come. 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. Titus, the Roman general, came in like a flood and just leveled the city, burned it to the ground. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, described it this way. He said, During the final siege of Jerusalem, the hills surrounding the city were covered with thousands of crosses bearing the bodies of Jewish soldiers and civilians who were crucified by the Romans, up to 500 a day. That happened just as Daniel prophesied. But everything in this prophecy wasn't fulfilled. Has it been fulfilled? See, the prophets, when they received revelations, they didn't see the time intervals between those revelations. They saw, it's, it's kind of like mountain peaks. You know, uh, they saw them that way. You look west here and you see, okay, you see Pikes Peak and you see Sleeping Giant and you see Mount Evans and then you see Long's Peak. And behind those peaks, you see other ranges, the next range of mountains. And then behind those, you can see sometimes another third range. And you think, wow, those are close together. They're just kind of jammed right together. We know better than that because we've looked on the map and we've driven through those mountains. You go quite a ways before you get to that next range. The prophets didn't understand this. So in verse 27, we see a partial fulfillment in 70 AD, but we see a much larger fulfillment still in the future. 
Let's look at the third segment. It says, He will make a firm covenant or a treaty with the many. And the context here is the Jewish people for one week. There it is. There's our 70th week. That's our final week. When the covenant is signed, God's prophetic clock starts ticking again. And the last years of prophecy play out. Let's talk about this final week. Who is this prince to come? Well, Scripture gives him many names, but the most common is the Antichrist. He enters into a covenant of peace with the Jewish people. He's like their Savior, because he finally brings them peace. They've never known that before. They don't have to worry now. In fact, he brings peace to the whole world. But with the Jews, he even allows them to rebuild their temple. Right now, they can't rebuild it. Why? There's a mosque of what? Is mosque of Omar or something like that? What is it? The Dome of the Rock. Yeah, it's, that's the most holy place for the Muslims. It's sitting right there where the old temple was. He's going to allow them to rebuild the temple and reinstitute their religious system of sacrifices and offerings. People are going to actually worship this man. He's amazing. And for three and a half years, he will deceive the first three and a half years of the seven. He will deceive not only them, but the whole world. And at the midpoint of the seven years, he breaks his treaty with Israel. Look what it says. In the middle of the week, Daniel's still writing, 521 B.C. In the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifices and grain offerings. Then, as a climax to his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. In the Hebrew, it would read, abomination of desolation. And he sets that up until the end that has been decreed upon this defiler has been poured out. You know where we are right now? We're in the middle of the tribulation period. We're in the midpoint of the tribulation period. And we know this by comparing what Jesus said with what Daniel said. Daniel predicted that in the middle of the 70th week, that is, at the end of the first three and a half years, an idolatrous image would be set up in the holy place. And all men would be ordered to worship this abominable idol, and refusing it would mean death. Revelation 13. Listen to what Jesus said. Therefore, in Matthew 24, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in that holy place... Let the reader understand. Let those who are, in, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now I want you to notice the Jewish context of what's going on here. He says, he mentions holy place. That's the temple. He mentions Judea. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things out that are in the house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Now how Jewish is that? Most Gentiles here in America wouldn't even know which day of the week the Sabbath is. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. When is all this coming? At that midpoint, when, when you see the abomination of desolation in that temple, you're in the midpoint 
of the 70th week. And where do we see this all playing out in our Bibles? The book of Revelation. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 basically describe the 70th week. And you see that being played out now in chapters 4 through 18 in the book of Revelation, which is the majority of the book. It's only got 22 chapters. It, it, it describes in detail Daniel's 70th week where the Antichrist reigns and brings on unbelievable persecution. In chapter 13 it says this of Revelation, And it was given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them. And it was given him authority over every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Hmm. And at the end of those seven years, it says Christ will return. He'll come back on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two. And it'll open up that eastern gate and he'll ride into Jerusalem and he'll set up his kingdom and he'll reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. It's called a millennium. At the end of those thousand years, Satan is cast into the lake of fire and, and eternity begins. We have a new heaven and a new earth. Just like that. I want, you to, I want to just show you this on a diagram. It kind of shows you kind of where we are, how, where we are at this point. We've got the 69 weeks. Actually, yeah. Yep. City's destroyed. Christ is cut off. 2,000 year gap. The prince that is coming comes, makes a tre treaty for, uh, at the beginning of that three, the first three and a half years is relatively peace, and then he, and all hell breaks loose. And that last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. The whole seven years is called the Tribulation period, but the last three and a half the Great Tribulation. There's going to be so many martyrs, you know, uh, for Christ at that point. And then the Second Coming. But what about us? I mean, if this 70-week prophecy only deals with the Jews, then why are we studying it? And where do us Christians fit in? Where do we fit into this line, timeline? Right here. Boink. We're in the gap. We're in the 69th, between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. Daniel knew there would be a gap. Because he mentions two things that are going to take place after the 62 weeks and the 69 weeks are over and before the 70th starts, so we know there's a gap. He just didn't know how long this gap would extend. He didn't know how far that next mountain range was. But it's a two thousand, over 2,000 years. And... We're in it. This has been called the church age. It was a secret. In Ephesians chapter 3, it describes it this way. The church is a mystery. You know what mystery means in the New Testament when it says that? It just means it's not a, oh, it's a spooky mystery. You know, it means it's just a truth that has not yet been revealed. Okay, it was a, a mystery. The church is a mystery, Paul says. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been re revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Ephesians 3.5 Jesus was the first to mention the church. In, Act, in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church. That's future tense. Jesus foreknew his rejection 
when he said this. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have wanted to gather you together as a hen does her chicks, but you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And he walks out of the temple. And you know what he starts talking to his disciples about? Matthew 24 and 25. He's telling them, okay, this is going to happen in the future. It's the 70th week of Daniel. Get ready for it. God temporarily interrupts his 70 weeks of program for Israel. And he removes them from the place of blessing. And why? Because they rejected their Messiah. So God removes them and He puts something else in that place of blessing. Something brand new called the church. You don't find the church in the Old Testament. It began right here in the gap. Fifty days after Christ resurrected. So here's a few reasons that support a pre-trib rapture. Why the church will not go through the 70th week of Daniel. Now these are again my interpretations and these are my thoughts. So, But number one, you can write this down. It doesn't belong in it. Daniel 9, 27. 24 through 27. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. The tribulation is distinctly Jewish in character. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. The first 69 weeks of Daniel, of his prophecy, extend from 444 B.C. to the Messiah's triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. That's Palm Sunday. And they have nothing to do with the church. Why then should the church be found in the 70th week, which is the tribulation period? On your outline it says, by Chuck Swindoll, I like this. He says, great havoc has been brought into the lives of many Christians' thinking because of the confusion between what God says to the Jew and what He says to the Gentile. Or what God says to the Jew and what God says to the church of this era. Don't confuse those things. God says what He means and He means what He says. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. So whatever he has to say relates to the Jews in Jerusalem. This entire 70-week prophecy, Gabriel specifically identifies the people this concerns. The Jewish people. Some of you might be thinking, okay, I, I see it, I kind of agree. Uh, it's kind of new, but I'm, I'm, I'm there. But the 70-week of Daniel's people in his holy city has got to start sometime and when it does, where are we? We're gone. We don't belong, remember? Where do we belong? Right here in that gap. God placed the church there and He's going to remove the church from there. And how will He do this? By His exit strategy. The, the rapture. Remember the verse we looked at? Let's look at it again. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. For the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. No indication He came to earth there. That's that secret coming where He, he removes His bride. Because we don't belong. The second reason I think 
the church will not go through the, the 70 weeks of Daniel is because of his absence in chapters 4 through 18 of the book of Revelation. These are the chapters 4 through 18 that relate specifically to the 70th week of Daniel or the seven year tribulation period. There are 24 verses in the book of Revelation relating to the church. 20 of those refer to the church in our present age right now. Two of those refer to the church taking part in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that takes place in heaven. This is in Revelation 19. By the way, the first, the 20 of the 24 relating to the church now, they all happen in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation. And the one that's talking, the two that are talking about the church taking part in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's in Revelation 19. But that's up there. And there's two more. And those talk refer to the church in the future state. Verse 21. I mean chapter 21. Israel on the other hand is all throughout those 4 through 18 chapters. Daniel had it right all along. Let me give you one more good reason why there's so many and there's so many others but I want to give you this last one. And it's eminency. The word eminent comes from the Latin word emineo, which means to overhang. So an eminent event is one that is always hanging overhead or ready to happen. Other things may happen before the eminent event, but nothing must happen before the eminent event, or it wouldn't be eminent. And there are many verses in the teach that we should be constantly looking for the Lord to return. There's, we should be constantly looking for the Lord to return. And I'm just going to go through these real quick. Wow, it's 7 till. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We already looked at that year, weeks ago. But he said, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They were even having problems. Some of those guys quit their jobs. And they were thinking the Lord's coming back. I'd say that was an eminent event they thought of. They thought he was coming back. The words wait for and to wait for the sun from heaven, they come from a com it's a compound word meaning up and wait for. It's like waiting up for someone to arrive. When you know company's coming at any moment and they're a little late, you don't go to bed. You wait up for them. And when these believers, were, were they misguided in waiting up for the Lord like this and quitting their jobs thinking that he was coming back right away? If they were misguided, who taught, them to, who taught them that? Paul's the only other Christian they knew on planet Earth. And he went there for three weeks, way over in Macedonia, and saw some saved and started teaching them, and then he left. I guess it was Paul. Hmm. If these believers had been taught that the tribulation in part or in whole must first run its course, it is difficult to see how they would be described as expectantly awaiting Christ's return. They should rather have been described as bracing themselves for the tribulation and the events connected with it. And the second verse, Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's clear from this verse that Paul included himself among those who were eagerly awaiting for the Savior. He says, we eagerly await. They were looking for the Savior, not the Antichrist. It's another verse, Titus 2. For the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. These early believers were waiting for Christ to appear. This is a blessed hope. It's a hope. Waiting for the Antichrist? I don't think so. That's not a hope at all. That's not a blessed hope either. Philippians 4. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is The Lord is near. In the original language it would render it this way. This is how the Weiss translation translates it. The Lord is near in that His coming may occur at any moment. And then the last one we'll look at here. I think there's more on your sheet. You can look them up. But And now, dear children, continue in Him so that when He appears, we may be confident and ashamed before Him in His coming. How can anyone deny that John believed Christ could appear at any moment? What was his concern for these Christians? He wanted them to be careful how they lived. So that if Christ were to come back, they wouldn't be ashamed. To me, that's eminency. I'm just going to include with this just two real quick thoughts. The pre-tribulation rapture is the only view of the rapture that fits into the New Testament teaching of the imminent return of Christ. It's the only view that one can honestly say Christ could return at any moment because it alone teaches that Christ will come to rapture the church before the 70th week of Daniel and that nothing must happen before His return. All of the other rapture views teach that at least part of the 70th week must transpire before Christ can come to rapture the church. These views destroy the New Testament teaching of the imminent coming of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, The date of that coming is concealed, but watch for Him and always be ready, that you may not be ashamed at His advent. Should a Christian man go into worldly assemblies and amusements? Would he not be ashamed should his Lord come and find him among the enemies of the cross? I dare not go where I should be ashamed to be found should my Lord come on a sudden. And then the practical implications of all of this, and I've listed several verses and several reasons why, how that should affect us. And I'm just going to let you take these home, and you can look up those verses and just think about these, because I think this is how, this is how it should affect us. And remember, it's a comforting hope. Jesus knew the disciples were going to go through some very deep waters when He was about to leave them. And many of them, all of them, except John, would be martyred. And yet, you know what He left them with? Don't be a... Um, uh, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and take you to myself. That was their hope. No matter how bad things get, even if they get martyred, hey, that's where they're going, right to that dwelling place. Cheer up. <laughs> worst thing that can happen to a Christian, he's dying and goes to heaven. That's the worst thing. So, it is a comforting hope. Number four down there, first Thess. And it should encourage an otherworldly attitude, and I do believe that. I don't think, frankly, we think about the Lord's return. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not even going to ask me to raise my hand. Of course, I've been thinking about it the last few weeks, because I've been getting ready for this. But how many of you don't raise your hands? Even thought about the Lord's return this last week, or the last month? Well, maybe you don't agree with this view, and that's fine. But if you do, we need to think about this. Because I think it offers hope. 
And I think it helps us to keep our mind focused on that day. I'm living for that day. I'm not living for now. I'm living for that day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience these saints have had in listening to this so long. And, and I pray you just help us, Lord. Uh, you told the believers that they could find comfort with these words um, about your soon return. We want to do that, Lord. We want to be like that. We want to be like them in anticipating your return and your arrival. Thank you that it's a blessed hope. And Lord, help that to keep our eyes on that day when you come back. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to stop with one little... Are they here? Yeah. Why don't you guys come on up real quick. We have a little song. Phil and I taught this to our kids when they were little. And I thought, well, maybe you couples would enjoy hearing this. So I got my grandkids here. They're going to come up and sing this song for you. It's a short little thing. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to mouth it with them. Okay, Jack, you ready? Let's have Hannah over here. Let's have Hannah right here. Put her in front. She's shorter. Okay, that's good. That's good. Jack, are you ready? Okay. Thank you. Fire! 
suffer. 